0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14 this morning, and uh, we're looking at some eschatology here. In uh, verses 18 and 19. We almost got through those two verses last week and then uh, we're ready now to move on to the rich and the poor in uh, verses 20 and 21. But uh, I do want to take a moment to to wrap up some of the things we didn't quite get to and make sure we're solid on what it is we're looking forward to, that we have an accurate biblical eschatology and that we're not uh, mismagnifying things that should be minimized rather than magnified. So uh, Proverbs 14 and uh, verses 18 and 19, the naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. The evil will bow down before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. And uh, oh, that it were today. I tell you, um, looking forward to that. Before we do get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the privilege and blessing to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father we thank you for the confession of sin, we thank you for the cleansing procedure that blesses us, that when we confess our sins you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so having been cleansed Father we enter into your presence and this is our blessing Father I thank you that we enter within the veil that is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, here we are, Father, today to present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Bless our time in your truth today, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So uh, if you are following, this is point 12 in the outline, and uh, we we key in on some of these expressions. We've already seen Pethy in a room before. We've had them in previous paragraphs. We understand who the, the naive is. That's Pethy. And uh, who Arum is, that's the shrewd, all right? And uh, in fact, uh, just recently we saw in verse uh, 16 there, a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. Uh, verse 15, actually, the naive believes everything. You know, pethy just swallows whatever you're dishing up and doesn't even think about it. That's uh, that's naive, that's pethy. Uh, but the sensible man, that's Arum. Arum uh, considers his steps, and so he 's not just going to believe it because you said it he 's going to check it out he 's going to put thought into it, and that 's uh, a positive thing and so when we get to the verses eight and eighteen and nineteen we 're still dealing with those same characters, but we have i think uh, these other terms uh, such as inherit, such as crowned. And they grab my attention on a more of an eschatological scope, that we're not just looking presently here and now, not simply the practical benefits of, of the Word of God as, as wisdom is applied today in time, but actually looking beyond today and looking to where we're headed eschatologically. And so... Um, inherit by itself does not always look forward to a future fulfillment Some, there can be present inheritances uh, that we've seen in the book of Proverbs but uh, the the crowned, I think is, is what really locks it in uh, together with inherit and then together with verse 19 uh, the the recognition that this is not normal activity here and now the evil bow down before the good well when does that happen and uh, the wicked at the gates of the righteous when does that happen that is never uh, an experience in the age of israel or in the church age or in any uh, unfolding plan do we have a uh, fulfillment of this on earth whereby uh believers get to live in the word of god and have a a uh, a uh, a life of righteousness that we exclude the unbeliever from it you know, there's no theocracy on earth whereby uh, we, we expel unbelievers from the city limits of Austin, for example, or the city limits. You know, you can't be an American citizen if you don't, if you're not born again, so we expel you kind of a thing, all right? And uh, so there you have it. But this is what we have to look forward to. The evil will bow down before the good. That's going to happen. Why? Because every tongue will confess. Every knee will will bow. Uh, before. And who's the good one? Ultimately, it's the good one is Jesus Christ, but then all of us uh in in application. Uh The wicked at the gates of the righteous. Uh, we're looking for this. It's the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And uh, the wicked are outside the gates, we're told repeatedly, outside the gates. And uh, there's a reason for that. So um, this is what we dealt with a week ago. We almost got through it. Uh, there have been previous inheritance proverbs, and, and by the way, that's inheritance kind of uh, on their own, not linked to crowned, and not linked to uh, context that's clearly eternal. And uh, the four previous times we've had passages centering on inheritance, two of them have been eternal in scope, and two of them have been temporal in scope, or nature, and, uh, and so that's fine. Uh, We can deal with it there. And then. so since we've had a mix where two of them have been temporal and two of them have been eternal, it's legitimate to ask ourselves, all right, well what about this one now? This is our fifth time to encounter this as a concept. Uh, Is it is it temporal? Is it dealing with our circumstances in time? Or is it eternal? Is it looking forward to our circumstances in eternity? And I think clearly it is. Then the idea of crowned is uh is uh, links it to that eternal scope. Uh while we have inheritance hundreds of times in the Old Testament, Kothir for crowned is used only here. And uh, Kether uh, as a noun is used three times in Esther, but the verb uh kafir, crowned is used only here. So we looked at that and then finally evil bowing before the good and wicked outside the gates of the righteous this is purely eschatological waiting ultimate fulfillment in the not not only in the millennium but in the dispensation of the fullness of times in the new heavens and the new earth you see the millennium starts with only believers but guess what it doesn't take long and there's new generations that are born and before you know it we've got a whole world full of unbelievers again uh, by the end of the millennium when Satan is released, those that march under his banner, it says, are like the sand of the seashore. All right? So this is what I want to make sure we're solid on this morning before before we move on. So uh, the idea of evil bowing before the good, the idea of expelling the wicked, kick them out, get them out of here, whereby they are outside the gate. Um, all the, the passages that speak of outside, whether it's outside the gate, outside the dinner, outside the wedding feast... You know, when you're in the outer darkness with a weeping and gnashing of teeth, if you're outside the gate, uh, all of that's eschatological when we're looking to prophetic fulfillment of the, of the end times. So, um, here too, if you're not familiar with Ephesians 1.10, I think most of you that are here this morning were here last week, but that's our verse that centers on the dispensation of the fullness of time. Ephesians 1.10, and I don't mind looking at it again. We'll uh, probably see it this evening also, who knows, as we review for the Schaefer Conference coming up. But when you realize that there is a, just an unbelievable amount of blessing that we have in the church age, I, I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. And we have in, in these verses uh, from three and following, we have this song of praise, blessed be the God and Father, and everything he's done for us and everything we have And we do have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We've got a tremendous portfolio of assets in the church age. And it's not something we're waiting to get when we get to heaven. We have it right here, right now. And despite the fact that he's done everything for us right here, right now, uh, in him, right? So verse 6 talks about the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One, capital B, that's a title for Jesus, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Again, we have that today, right here, right now. This is a description of our present salvation. Which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him, all right and so all of this is what he's made known to us in the church age. We have uh, things that have been revealed to us mystery doctrine that I was going to sneeze there for a moment. Sorry. False alarm. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he pur- uh, purposed in him and now we get to the key issue with a view to a dispensation of the fullness of times, right? An administration suitable to the fullness of the times. And that's not the here and now. That's not the church age. So everything he's given us for the here and now, uh, we enjoy it here and now, but we recognize this is just preparation for what ultimately God has intended. So with a view to an administration, not the mystery, an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Okay? And so it's another indicator of why that's not the church age. It's not the here and now. That's looking forward. Uh, presently, you, th- those that are saved are in Christ. I'm in Christ. You're in Christ. Every believer in the world is in Christ. But that's not all things because we've got a whole world full of unbelievers that are not summed up in Christ. Okay? So there is a coming of an age, though, when it's all regenerate, all believers, no unbelievers, and it's not the millennium. Like I say, the millennium uh, will have unbelievers in in very short order. It's the new heavens and the new earth, as we see here. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And uh, so just pay attention to that. Mark that down and spend some time there. You're also going to notice here at the end of the chapter you're going to notice that we are raised up, we are seated with Him at His right hand in the heavenly places in Christ. I love that. We are presently now seated at the right hand of Jesus Christ even as He is at the right hand of the Father. That's powerful because we're in Christ. And why is that? Why um, Why um is that? What are we being suited for? Why are we positionally seated in heaven now What are we waiting to go forth and do when Jesus goes forth and and does or does, okay, right? Because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, and then Jesus has to go forth and rule in the midst of his enemies. So why are we seated at the Father's right hand until, what is it we're being prepared to go and do, all right? And so, as it says here, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are the things that have to be abolished in First Corinthians 15 so that Jesus can hand the kingdom to the Father, that God might be all in all. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There it is. I don't think the text could be more plain than that that Ephesians has a future emphasis, that Ephesians takes the time to lay out our unfathomable riches in Christ and then just tells us, you ain't seen nothing yet. The age to come is, is where even greater grace is on the way. And so he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now, he's head of the church now, but head over all things to the church that's fullness of time. That's not church age. Because all things aren't in subjection yet. Which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We know we're the body of Christ, but what does it mean to be the fullness? And we're the fullness of He who fills. All in all. Okay? Keep those phrases in mind. They all apply in First Corinthians 15 to the, uh, the great abdication. Let's look at that now. 1 Corinthians 15 on our way to 2 Peter. 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, it's not on the way. We've got to back up to 1 Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam, all die, as verse 22, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ in his coming. So the very first resurrection ever was first fruits Christ on Sunday, April 5th, 33 A.D. He was raised from the dead. And then those who are Christ, it is coming. The rapture of the church will be the second resurrection. The dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Then comes the end. That's the last resurrection. The last resurrection is the end. And of course we, we understand that from Revelation 20, we'll see him shortly, we have the resurrection of the end, the resurrection of life, the resurrection of judgment. And uh, the uh, when Martha told the Lord, yes Lord, I know, my brother will rise again on the last day. Okay, that's that was the understanding, was the resurrection at the end. Now then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. This is what we call either the great abdication or the great paradidymy deliverance. Jesus Christ is going to paradidomy the kingdom to God the Father. And when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, those are the same terms we just read in Ephesians 1. Rule, authority, power, and dominion. There's a fourth one in Ephesians 1. That they have to be in subjection under his feet. It doesn't happen in the church age. It doesn't happen in the tribulation. It doesn't happen in the millennium. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. God, the Father is not included in that. Because God the Father is the one that's putting those things in subjection under His feet. And so uh, when all things are subjected to Him then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. And so here we call this the Omega moment. This is the last moment in time. Once this happens then we cross from time into eternity future. All right? And so we call this the omega moment. The the Father has had a plan to provide for this kingdom for the Son. The Son is going to enjoy that kingdom, not just for a thousand years, but for a thousand generations after the thousand years. In the new heavens, on the new earth, and then comes the end. Once all things are in subjection to Him. And then He hands the kingdom to the Father, and uh, we cross into eternity future. And that's kind of the the end of the Bible story there. And that's what we're looking forward to. We should not be looking forward to the millennium. Second Peter 3.13 says, according to his promise we are looking for, not the millennium, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, do you? Do you look for these things? Okay. Revelation 21 and 22. And Um, pick up there. I'm going to back up to chapter 20 like we did a week ago just to make sure we're clear and then we'll gain new ground here this morning. So um, we have uh, kind of an absent church from chapters 4 to chapter uh, 19 really. We have the church in chapters 2 and 3. And then uh, when chapter 4 begins uh, the voice says come up here and John goes to heaven to see a vision in chapter 4 and 5 and then to watch the tribulation unfold in chapters 6 through 19. And I love that. I love that overall uh, uh, description of the book of Revelation. To me it's proof that, that we can't be here on earth during the tribulation. And anyone that tries to prove to you that uh, the church has to go through the tribulation, has no explanation for the outline structure that we see here throughout this book. But in any event, um, sneak peek if you care. Uh, we're going to win, okay? At Armageddon, uh, the heavens are open and Jesus comes down and we're following him on white horses and the, all that battle and all that great stuff happens in chapter 19. So we win. And then. Uh, and then there's a just a huge execution of, of all the uh, captured enemies there uh, at the end of the chapter. So then as chapter 20 begins, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And uh, that uh, that abyss got unlocked earlier in the tribulation, all the demons flooded out and, and infested the earth. Well it's going to get locked up again now for the millennium. And so... Um, He lays this great, this mighty angel comes down and he laid hold of the dragon. Just in case you're not clear on who the dragon is, he's also the serpent of old, right? Remember Genesis chapter three. And in case you're still not clear on who that is, he's also known as the devil. And if that's not clear enough, you can call him Satan. Okay. So redundantly four times over, there's no question who's getting uh, uh, handcuffed here, wrapped up in the chains and thrown in the abyss binds him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. And after these things he must be released for a short time. And so this is our introduction to the millennium. The the there's preparatory work that has to be done before the millennium can start. And so after uh, Armageddon is, is completed, after the enemies are defeated, part of the mopping up after uh, operations at the end of, the, of Armageddon is uh, Satan has to be bound. And these are prepar- preparation steps before the millennium can start. We also have to resurrect Old Testament saints. And uh, this we see in verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Here's our first glimpse of the church since chapter 3. All right, all judgment is given to the son how many how many thrones does he need? but it's thrones plural, okay, because the Son has a bride that's in Christ, and we will judge this world. We will judge angels, and uh, where Christ is, we are, and so plural thrones here is significant because it's Christ and his bride that are seated on these thrones. they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead. Clearly these are tribulational martyrs. These are those that wouldn't take the mark of the beast and they got executed for not, for not taking the mark of the beast. These are tribulational martyrs. I also believe in agreement with Daniel 12 and John 5 and Job and Isaiah and other passages, I think this is clearly uh, not only tribulational saints that are raised raised here, but all Old Testament saints are resurrected prior to the millennium. One of the rewards is for for Jews is they get to go to a banquet where they can feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, kind of hard to do that if the Old Testament saints don't get resurrected first. (laughs) Okay? And so even though this verse is spotlighting tribulational saints, uh, I think in the understanding of the resurrections we would include any Old Testament believer here. Moses, Daniel, David, any of the Old Testament believers are are resurrected here. And you'll notice specifically though, the tribulational martyrs have a blessing. They come to life and they're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Okay? And that's a special blessing to the tribulational martyrs. Uh, that's not us. I've had people say, well that's us. We, we, we get resurrected, we reign with Christ. I said, yeah, 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 but we reign with Christ forever. We don't reign with Christ for a thousand years. This is just a temp job. This is day labor right here. This is, this is uh, tribulational martyrs and they get to be resurrected and they're going to serve in the provisional government of the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is not a permanent government. It's a provisional government. Are we clear on that? Just like in any other, in the history of the world, just as biblically speaking, when a land is conquered and you put your own governor in place, it happens again and again and again in the, in the Bible record. Okay? So Jesus invades planet Earth and he conquers. And the first thing he sets up is a provisional government. And, and his rulers for that thousand years are who? The tribulational martyrs, those that were put to death under the reign of Antichrist. And so he brings them back to life and he puts them to work as a part of his provisional government. And it, it's not going to be the permanent government, not going to be the, the administration on the, on the new earth. And that's, uh, of course, fullness of time. And that's us. We reign with Christ forever. All right, so, and blessed and holy is the uh, verse 6 the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these, the second death has no power. Um, understand, uh, see, I skipped verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And so unbelievers don't get resurrected till after the millennium. Believers are resurrected before the millennium, unbelievers after the millennium. We're talking about Old Testament dead people. Are we clear on that? Alright, so Old Testament believers before the millennium starts and unbelievers after the millennium is over because the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So this is the first resurrection. The first of these two. So, blessed and holy is the one who is a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Again, that's the blessing for the tribulational martyrs. So, uh, I think I did this with you last week, or maybe I, no, I did this with you on Wednesday. Now I don't remember. But we have this emphasis here. The thousand years is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament, but it's mentioned here. Okay? And it's mentioned over and over again here. So, you know, go back and read your Old Testament sometime and read the Davidic covenant, read the Abrahamic covenant, read the New Covenant, read the promises. Did God give millennial promises to Abraham or did He give eternal promises to Abraham? Eternal. Did He give millennial promises to David? Did He give eternal promises to David? Eternal. The new covenant, is it a millennial covenant or an eternal covenant? It's eternal. Everything in the Old Testament looking forward to, to the Messiah is eternal. See? Even during Jesus' life the disciples were all confused. They said, well, we were told the Messiah is going to live forever. What, what are you talking about dying and going into the cross for? <laughs> okay. And, and the, so the, the people in Jesus' lifetime were confused. I said, you know, we heard Messiah was going to live forever. So everything in the Old Testament was eternal in focus. And here we have thousand years. Verse 2, verse thousand years, verse 3, verse thousand years, verse 4, thousand years, verse 5, thousand years, verse 6. And over, 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 over and over again, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and you're thinking, wow, this has got to be a big deal until you get to verse 7. And now it's over. The thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And you're thinking, holy smokes where did that time go? I mean, it just zipped by like that. Are you kidding me? Where did the time go? And so uh, he comes out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war and the number of them, look at that, what does it say? Is it like the sand of the seashore? It's not a small rebellion. You would like to think after a thousand years of perfect government, of Jesus Christ himself ruling, in perfect justice, perfect government, perfect righteousness, and in perfect environment, the lion lies down with the lamb, they can't blame environment, they can't blame government. Those are the two biggest things people want to blame for all their problems in life. Anyway. You would kind of like to think, okay, Satan was released from his prison, but eh, nobody really cared. They ignored him. They kept loving Jesus and serving him, you know. Maybe, you know, two or three malcontent, you know, rabble. They they it doesn't say that. It doesn't say it's a small rebellion. It says it's a huge rebellion. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And so they come up on the broad plain of the earth and they surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But remember Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It doesn't end. It never ends. Beast and false prophet were thrown in there at the end of chapter 19 and they're still there a thousand years later. Okay, That's, that's important people that want to convince you or convince me that the lake of fire is just uh, annihilationalism and that they stop existing. They don't stop existing. They're still there. They're going to be there forever and ever, it says. And they will be in torments, day and night, forever and ever. All right, then we get introduced to the great white throne. This is when not judgment seat of Christ... That's for us in heaven before the second advent. This is now the great white throne after the millennium. So I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. So the great white throne can't be convened while we still have heaven and earth in existence. But they're going to be destroyed by fire. We get that. So then we have the judgment And then uh, even death and Hades get thrown into the lake of fire. And then, chapter 21 and chapter 22, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. Okay, so are you tracking the sequence on this? Destruction of heavens and earth, convening of the great white throne, then creation of the new heavens and new earth. We can't have the new heavens and new earth created immediately because then you would have unbelievers standing there for judgment. And in the new heavens and the new earth are never going to have any unbeliever, any sin, any darkness, ever. And so, in between, when there is no place, no place was found for them, it says. There is no place. Where is the, where is the great white throne convened? No place. Imagine such a thing. Kind of boggles the mind, isn't it? That we're dealing with this physical existence is gone. The whole universe is gone. This is literally no place. And yet, the great white throne is there. The dead, great and small, are raised to stand there. Books are opened. And then they're thrown into the lake of fire. Those whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life. The believers that will, of course, uh, not be thrown in the lake of fire, they'll get to enter into the the new heavens and the new earth. The believers that are resurrected here. All right. Then we have new heavens and a new earth. For the first heavens, the first earth passed away there was no longer any sea. Then we get two full chapters of fullness of time. Uh, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, and this glorious city then descends. And it says it comes down. The verb is a verb of coming. The the adjective is a motion of of downward motion. It says it comes down. There is no. It doesn't say it lands. And so there's a big debate. Does it does it descend and then orbit above the earth, or does it descend and and literally land on the earth? Because you can read it either way. Um, as you look at this. But it's coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And this is so more powerful than the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld His glory. Okay, that was first Advent. This is an unbelievable greater glory. And uh, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice he's not giving them new eyes. He's not resurrecting them or rapturing them. The living saints at the end of the millennium are not raptured. They're not resurrected. They're They're not glorified in this sense. But they do have sin and death and tears wiped away. Wiped, wiping away sin from current eyes is totally different from giving new eyes. And There's no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And this is why I believe the living saints at the end of the millennium, they have the sin nature removed. They get a complete sin nature uh, removal, right? Like if you take out a tonsils, or you take out an appendix, or you take out a Spleen or a gallbladder or whatever. we have surgeons that can take out a lot of things. Um, I'm sorry a syn-ectomy. a synectomy, I like that. a synectomy. that's kind of cool. <laughs> synectomy. I'll think about that. And um, but there is there a surgeon that can take the sin nature out of you? No, of course not. I believe the sin nature is in every chromosome of your DNA. It is, it is the whole sins of the Father that are bestowed. And so to wipe that away, that's a miracle. and This is what God does. And so with humanity then restored to sinless Adamic glory, um, we can start having babies on the new earth. Just like Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. The point is they're not resurrected so they can still procreate. And that's... Uh, An important distinction. All right. So I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. How about that? It's like another Tetelestai moment. Okay. And uh, because he was victorious at the first Tetelestai moment, because he was victorious on the cross to say it is finished. Now he can look forward to this. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost he who overcomes will inherit these things i will be his god and he will be my son this is the fatherhood of jesus christ where we will have generations that will be sons of jesus christ you and i are not sons of jesus christ you and i are brothers and sisters we're sons and daughters of god the father We're brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. Today Jesus Christ doesn't have any sons. Anyone that gets saved today becomes a brother of Christ, a sister of Christ, becomes a son or a daughter of God the Father. But for a thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth, we have sons of Jesus Christ. So keep that sonship in mind. And it's not really a troublesome verse because I think it's a beautiful verse. I think it finally gives us a definition of what uh, Isaiah 11 was talking about when or was it Isaiah 9. Uh, when it says, uh, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father. Right? We finally get a, uh, uh, a fulfillment of Eternal Father. Jesus gets to be the Father in the new heavens and on the new earth. And then verse 8, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving, this is really our connection to Proverbs 14, for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part would be where? In the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. They were thrown into the lake of fire at the end of chapter 20, and guess what? They're still there after a thousand generations they're still there all right and then uh, one of the seven angels said come I'll show you I'll give me a tour here I'll show you the bride the wife of the lamb and this is where we learn of course that the the city is prepared as a bride and it's the residence for the bride so he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain Showed me the holy city from uh, Jerusalem again. There's the verb coming down or descending out of heaven. Doesn't say that it lands. Okay, so again, that leads to the arguments and the fights. Does it? Does it land, or does it just come down? Does it come down out of heaven and then orbit above the earth? Do we get a new moon, if you will? Right. There's new heavens and a new earth. Does this become the new moon with respect to uh, to that? And having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. You know, these are the jasper walls that get sung about in a lot of gospel quartet music. Had a great high wall with 12 gates. At the gates, 12 angels. The names of, uh, were written on them. And we have, um, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the the city had 12 foundation stones. On them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, That's not Paul, that's Matthias for apostle number 12. They were apostles of the Lamb. And uh, then he gets to measure. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width. Well, that's a square, all right. And uh, it's just as uh, the length and its width. He measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles. That is a huge city. Okay, that's like from here to the Pacific Ocean. That's more than half the size of the United States. And um, yeah, its length and its width. But also notice its height is also equal. So what is this? Is this a great big Borg cube? What is this? Is this a pyramid? A pyramid could also be uh, 1,500 miles high? Or is it a a square? Does it have linear dimensions and then its altitude is 1,500 miles? If it's not sitting on the earth, maybe it descends to a a position above the earth (coughs) and it floats above the earth at an altitude of 1,500 miles. (coughs) However the case may be. We'll find out when we see it. How about that? And uh, then it starts to describe all these other things and the 12 gates. And you'll notice I saw no temple in it. That's a difference. Okay, There was a temple in the millennium. We have Ezekiel 40-48 through 48 to detail the millennial temple and all the animal sacrifices and all these other things. Here there's no temple. So when you want to break down the difference between the millennium and the fullness of time, that's a big one. Okay? Likewise the sea in the millennium, there's a river that comes from the, t- from the temple. There's a river that comes from the temple and it flows two directions. It flows west and east. And it flows into the western sea and it flows into the eastern sea. Well, That's kind of fun, but that's not, that has to be in the millennium because on the new earth there is no sea. Right? How about Isaiah 65? The youth will die at 100. Gotcha. That's got to be millennium because the new heavens and new earth, well, there's no more death. There's no more death. Okay? So this is, these are part of the exercises of what we do when we start to categorize and classify uh, different passages. Is that a millennial passage or is that a fullness of time passage? And uh, different things there. All right. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Notice, the nations will walk by its light. There are still Gentiles. There are still Gentile nations. And they will still be operating. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. There isn't going to be a Zechariah 14 rebellion like happens in the millennium. There aren't going to be Gentile nations that will decide to stop worshiping. Anyway, and as the nations operate, by the way, I believe the angels have to continue in their function because angels are tasked with watching the nations. So nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring the glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And oh, by the way, just so you remember, nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Where are the other ones? They're in the lake of fire. They're outside the gates. And as Proverbs 14 tells us, the the evil will bow down before the good and the wicked will be outside the gates. Um, Revelation, of uh, the, the fullness of time continues into chapter 22. Okay? Two full chapters to outline the dispensation of the fullness of time. It's, it's not just introduced in Ephesians 1:10 and ignored everywhere else. We have two complete chapters here of, of detail for the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, you know, if the millennium is squeezed in between Verse 6 and verse 7 of, of Revelation chapter 20, right? That little white space in between those two verses, uh, between verse 6 and verse 7, that little space of white in there, that's where the millennium is in the, in the book of Revelation. But where's the fullness of time? Two complete chapters. Two complete chapters. Chapter 21 chapter 22. All of this is fullness of time. New heavens and new earth. So then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life. And I I, I don't know, where does the river go if there is no sea? It's got to go somewhere. And uh, then there's the tree of life. Well, Why do I have a tree of life? There's no more death. Why do I have a tree of life on the new earth? Why does that get replanted? I know why I was in the garden. Well, wait a minute. Maybe I don't know why I was in the garden. Why did Adam and Eve have a tree of life in the garden? They weren't sinners yet. They they weren't. uh, Why do they need the tree of life? How was mortal humanity designed before the fall? All right. So here's the uh, tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. We don't have that today. Right? We get one tree, one fruit today is all we get. An apple tree gives you apples. Banana tree gives you bananas. I mean, that's just how it works. Orange tree gives you oranges. It never just gets in a mood to just change its mind and give you a different kind of fruit. But this tree of life, this is glorious. 12 fruits, 12 months. 12 fruits, yielding its fruit every month. And then the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Why do they need healing? There's no more sin, no more death, no more pain. The first things have passed away. What do they need healing for? Well, they, need, they might need healing in the case of an injury, they might need health in the case of mortal humans that are still having babies that need to have a provision to live long enough to see a thousand generations born on this earth, or on the new earth. Okay. Why does it have a tree of life? Well why did Adam and Eve's garden have a tree of life? Why uh, They were allowed to eat from the tree of life but they never did. It was only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they couldn't eat from. And then when they became sinners, He kicked them out so they couldn't eat from that tree. Why? It says if they stretch their hand out and eat from it, they'll live forever. And to God that was unthinkable that these fallen humans in fallen bodies would live forever. No. They have to be unfallen bodies to eat that fruit and live forever. And that's what... uh, The new heavens and new earth are all about. That's what the thousand generations are going to be um, dealing with there in the fullness of time. So, um, there will no longer be a curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not have need of light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. You know if there's no more night then that's why they call this the eternal day. Right? Because you can't have another day until there's a night. You know, There was evening, there was morning day one, there was evening, there was morning day two. You know, What happens if there's no more night? Well then it's, there's no more tomorrow. It's today. It's the eternal today of the fullness of time. All right. So those are some fun things, too. And um, anyway, there's one final warning in this chapter as well about who's outside. Verse 15. The uh, outside are the dogs. and, And it's. Combined with gates in verse 14, blessed are those who wash the robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. So in other words, believers get saved prior to uh, the fullness of time. May, b- may enter by the gates into the city outside of the dogs and the sorcerers, the immoral persons and murderers, the idolaters and everyone who pract- loves and practices lying. Why? Where are they? They're in the lake of fire. They're still there a thousand generations later, outside the gates. So I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Eschatology ought to be evangelistic Eschatology ought to be motivational to believe. Believe today. It doesn't cost anything. The price has already been paid. But believe today. Come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Anyway, Blessings and cursings as the chapter ends. Verse 19 says, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take his part away from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. The last promise in the Bible is I am coming quickly. And so our reply is, amen, come Lord Jesus. Our reply is Maranatha. Oh, that it were today. And the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. All right, so there it is the fullness of time. And this is what we have to look forward to. And this is what um, we're going to talk about some more tonight in my Schaefer presentation and the the paper I'm going to be presenting in Houston. And this is what uh, everybody should have been looking forward to from the Old Testament to the church age and on into the millennium. We're looking for. New heavens and our new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking forward to. And uh, we can have it set there. All right. We move past 18 and 19. We get to issues of rich and poor in verses 20 and 21. Any questions before we change topics? Any eschatology questions? Any millennium questions? Any any tribulation questions? Any fullness of time questions? Any new heavens and new earth questions? Or you guys are just totally solid and everything is great? And or it is so mind-bogglingly confusing you don't even know where to start. How do I even ask a question? It's going to be something like that. All right. All right. Well, if it's this big of a train wreck, then I may not come back from Houston. I'll just. Stay there hopelessly. Yes, sir. Not really a question. Uh, looking at the millennium, mm-hmm. then as one more demonstration of the hopelessness of trying to do without Christ. Uh, Satan's locked mm-hmm. up, so he can't be an influence. All of his angels are locked up, so all in and perfect environment. Right. it's still rebellion against Christ. And the nature is still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right from the very beginning. Even those believers still have old nature. Mhm. That's true. And believers can be just as deluded as unbelievers. Oh, more so even. I think even more so. You know, because remember at the end of the tribulation, all the unbelievers are executed. Even the, even the ones that managed to survive Armageddon, uh, sheep and goat judgment. Before the millennium even starts. Sheep on the left, goats on the right, goats are going to hell. It's only the sheep that are coming into the kingdom. So only believing Gentiles will enter into the the kingdom. Jews the same way. Ezekiel chapter 20 is the wilderness judgment of Israel. And you read in Ezekiel chapter 20, the rebels are purged. Every, Every Jewish person from the four corners of the world is regathered, brought into Uh, any Jewish person on the planet is going to be regathered by angels. They're going to be brought into the wilderness judgment and the unbelievers are going to be executed. This is how all Jews can be regathered, but only believers are entering into the land. Both prophecies are true. Every Jewish person on the planet gets regathered because Jesus said he would and he's faithful, but the unbelieving Jews are are executed, they're sent to hell. Only believers enter into the millennial kingdom. And so then the regenerate Jewish people, they get to walk that holy highway, right? The holy highway that, that we studied from Isaiah and Jeremiah and the gospel songs talk about. The holy highway into Jerusalem from the wilderness. And uh, so the millennium starts with population earth, 100% saved. How fun is that? But they still have sin natures. Okay? So how long does it take for a generation to be born, for them to not get saved, for another generation to get born, for them to not get saved, and then for those who are saved to start harboring resentments and carnality and darkness, you know, how long did it take for the Exodus generation to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground and then they start grumbling over the desert, okay? Can that imagine? People that survive Armageddon? They enter into the millennium and then they start grumbling about how great they had it back when Antichrist was, was ruling? You know? Yes, sir. Just uh, the thing I wanted to say about it is that this almost makes the case for the, the dispensation of the falls of time mm-hmm. as the counter-demonstration of the perfect just the perfect environment and the perfect king mm-hmm. That's right. No sin nature at all in the new earth. So this, I think, makes a case—a very strong case. Mm -hmm. Oh, I do too. I agree. I think. I think once you understand the depravity of the millennium, once you understand the failure of the millennium, once you recognize that even some of the worship in the millennium is is fake, it's feigned obedience. Um, Once you start to see that Jesus is ruling with a rod of iron, that he has to execute rebels every morning. Uh, Once you see all the hardship that Jesus has, it's really hard to define that as the summing up of all things in Christ. It's really hard to summarize that as a place of blessing. Read Psalm 45. I'm going to have to close with this, but uh, let's look at Psalm 45. Psalm 40, or you could turn to any of them. Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 45. Let's just do Psalm 45 because this is one with a king and a queen. And... um, You look at Psalm 45, and there's great things that are happening here. All right. Um, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. This is a vision of a kingdom of, of maximum blessing from the father to the son. That's not the millennium. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. Because of course, he's got to go to battle before he can take this kingdom. In your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteous, righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. Your The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Okay? So it's, it's conquering And it's raining. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So is this hardship, is this tribulation, or is this joy, is this blessing? Uh, All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. And we often, we talk about out of the ivory palaces, he left heaven, he came to earth, he died on the cross, first advent. But the context here is where he's living now and where the fragrance is coming from now and where the music is playing now. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now of course the Old Testament doesn't know about the church and the mystery doctrine and the bride of Christ but still we have a song here celebrating the king Messiah king and his queen. The Old Testament just doesn't know that it's us. okay? And and I think in the context of this this can't be the millennium because the heavenly Jerusalem descending out of heaven doesn't happen until after the destruction of the present heavens and earth. I think it's a fullness of time application. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king. And so she's a queen, but she herself is also a king's daughter. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, a thousand of them. Therefore the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. So you read a, you read a psalm like that. And then you go and you see the failure of the millennium. And you stop and you ask yourself, really? The Father wants to give the Son joy and blessing and greatness and all this stuff. And, and instead, I'm talking about the view that just has the millennium and the great white throne or an eternity future, right? The millennium and then the great abdication and Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father. In that view, in that flawed view of, of millennium and then abdication, um, Jesus never gets a reign of blessing. He never gets a reign of joy. He never gets a reign of all these delights. He just gets the rod of iron rule over stubborn sinners. See? And then when you put that omega moment, when you locate that omega moment as taking place at the great white throne, and then you just make the new heavens and new earth just eternity future, I think that's, uh, I think that's uh, an inferior view. And I'll say more about that tonight, okay? For those who make it back tonight. So that means uh, we, we're, next week we will return and pick up on the rich and the poor. And because uh, some of your neighbors are rich and some of your neighbors are poor and uh, Proverbs uh, t- teaches us how to deal with that, what we're supposed to do. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness, thank You for this day, and I pray that You will continue to bless these uh, millennial studies and and fullness of time studies. Father, uh, open the eyes of our understanding so that we're clear on what Your plan is centered on. Thank You for being faithful, Father. And make us uh, clear on what we're being suited to do. We're going to reign with Christ. And uh, we're the queen here from Isaiah 45, or from Psalm 45, and we've got uh, got, uh, a destiny in front of us as well. So uh, open our eyes to these powerful truths. I thank you and I praise you Father in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.